I'm Robin Amlo of IBS Intelligence, and I'm joined by Peter Hazelhurst, co-founder of Synctera. We'll get into what Synctera is itself a little later on, but I want to begin, uh, Peter, if I may, by asking you what trends you're seeing within fintech at the moment. And, and if we can start on that side of things with what's going on in the financial markets, we seem to have a little bit of a shakeout of organizations. There's been some M&A activity. There are people listing. There are people still raising money, despite the fact everybody told me that was going to die the death during the pandemic. So if we can start there, what are you seeing there? I think there's a couple of categories. So there's a ton of venture investment going into what I'll call the personalization of banking, in and particular in the US. So I'm going to stay in the US focus. We, I see a similar trend in Europe and in Southeast Asia, and particularly also in LATAM. But my focus in the US is what I'll call community creation that leads to financial services. So we're seeing every different sort of logical vertical group of people that aggregate in general. So doctors, lawyers, dentists, you name it, people that like the environment, people that like YouTube, aggregating around, hey, what if we could create some sort of financial services set of products and, and capabilities for them and do something differentiated? And that's yielding an incredible pressure to fund these really interesting ideas. It particularly works where you've heard of the phrase embedded finance. So I already have a community, but I want to extend them. Think, for example, the multitudes of different organizations that have services for the plumbers and the, the folks that come into your home and so forth. They do scheduling, they do organization management, they do lead gen. And then the natural step for that is, well, shouldn't they have remote deposit capture so that you can take the check and get funding access quicker from the consumer that you've just got paid? Many of those folks are trying to build financial services for their consumer groups. And what's interesting about the marketplace is the venture investors are saying, we actually like that because it tethers the value chain and creates an incremental revenue line for the existing business and creates more of the loyalty to the core. And to a certain extent, that's what we also did when I was running Uber Money. We created effectively a bank for drivers. And we had a community, which was the drivers that needed financial services. In general, the financial services they got were very expensive and somewhat exploitative if you went to regular retail banks because the, the customer base, the drivers themselves, didn't have access to the best products that you and I could get. So we recognized that we could offer them great services, help them in their financial journey, and as a result, it would also increase loyalty to the Uber platform. What's happening in terms of fintechs going public? There seems to be quite a stampede at the moment, particularly reverse takeovers or special purpose acquisition companies? I think what you're seeing is that there were a bunch of fintechs that got started in like 2013, 2015 timeframe that are now getting to significant material scale. And the private markets represents an easy source of funding. They could still go raise the next big round internally or with Tiger Global or one of these folks. But a trend that's happened quite recently is the domination of the SPAC model. Betsy Cohen has done nine of them, I think. Chamath has done 26 or something crazy. And what's unique about them is it represents a very efficient method for founders and those organizations, those companies to get into the public markets and make it a, a much more effective way to fundraise without having to do much more dilution. And because of the movement in the marketplace where 
previously you had to sort of prepare for 12 months or 18 months with an IPO prep team and hire your CFO and all of those sorts of things. But if the public company is already extant, it actually makes a much more natural tuck-in to, to get into the public markets and to have material liquidity for everybody in the ecosystem. So I think there's been a bunch of those folks. I haven't tracked very many very early venture guys flipping into SPACs just yet, but my intuition is there'll be a second order function late this year or early next year where companies that were founded during the pandemic find an easy, quick path into the public markets. Probably not at the 2 billion to 10 billion range, which is what folks have been doing these days, but more realistically in the 500 to 1 billion range. And if you're a founder like me, you're trading off, do I want that type of liquidity or do I want to keep running internally with private equity or some other vehicle? Personally, I'm not sure all of the founding teams quite understand what it's like to be in a public company. Some people enjoy that. I've been there, done that a couple of times. I'm not sure everyone really actually wants it, but they're taking advantage of it. So, hey, welcome to Market Dynamics. We'll talk about other trends now. You mentioned embedded finance as one. Mm -hmm. What about banking as a service? That seems to be growing in importance as well. Yeah, I think it's a perspective thing. So I, I would think of banking as a service as a tech strategy to a fintech's needs. And what we actually have in the US is a unique situation where because there's a lack of the, con the concept of e-money that has been legislated in Europe or in Brazil or Mexico, in the US, you have to be a retail bank with a license in order to move money or to hold a balance. And as a result, you've got a whole bunch of fintechs saying, hey, I need a bank partner in order to launch my service. And the problem is there aren't enough banks to do that. And so why we started Sinkterra is to actually increase the volume or the supply of banks that are capable of offering services to fintechs. And one of the other things that's really unique about community banks in particular in the US is because of the Durban Amendment, they have one thing that's really unique, which is a revenue creation scheme through debit card swipes. So what happened is as a community bank under 10 billion in assets, you're allowed to charge up to 140 bits of interchange as an issuing bank. Big retail banks like B of A and Chase can't do that. And so what happens now, if you're a fintech, you actually really want the little baby banks to be your partner. The problem with that is that none of them have tech, none of them have resources. They don't have the 12 billion a year that Chase or B of A spends on IT. They have Bob, and Bob's really an expert at installing laptops. So we come along and we say, look, we're going to operate this service. We're going to do all of that. We're going to manage the compliance and the risk and all of the things that as a community bank, you're like, I know I have to do it. I don't know how to do it. Could you help me? And then we create a new line of business for them. It's not so much that you're creating a new line of business for them. You're also, maybe it's a bit much for me to put it this way, but you're kind of future-proofing them. Because if these smaller institutions don't embrace technology, they are just going to get left behind by other banks, other institutions, other fintechs. So you're playing matchmaker to these guys, are you? I don't want to be too grandiose in my vision, but I think one of the things that we honestly believe is that the, there's a value to the community bank. The challenge that the community bank has is how do they grow? So most of them will tend to be family-owned or family-started and are in uh, small towns across the US. And their growth trajectory is build a branch, buy somebody's bank from the city or the town next door. And that only gets you so far. They're not gonna ever be spending $50 million on an ad campaign on the internet to acquire new users. That's not gonna happen. So what we can do is we can help them spin up the virtual division that allows them to offer services to fintechs. They can grow through there. 
And they can turn around and take the deposits that are being put on file and lend them to the small community needs that they're in the marketplace for. So these community banks are the people that are putting people to work and helping the, the local small businesses, the local restaurants, the nail salons, the community forums, and so on. They need deposits to do that. You know, we've had $1.9 trillion of stimulus check that is helping funnel cash into those ecosystems. But that's ironically, it's not actually going to go very far. So actually sustained new deposit growth will be the thing that really helps these community banks. And how do we achieve that sustained new deposit growth? Is it the kind of service you're offering that's going to do that? I think it's companies like us that help these community banks take advantage of their asset, which is the license they have to move money into the federal payment system in the US, and the ability to charge interchange on issuing deposit cards. Then helping them acquire or get introduced to fintechs that are wanting service. So think of our business model as as a two-sided marketplace. Fintechs on one side, which are growing really, really quickly, combined with community banks on the other side. And what we do is we take in a new fintech and they say, hey, I'm doing a neobank for dentists. And we're like, great, what do you need? We need somewhere to get deposit accounts. And we actually need lending as a service because one of the things we're going to do is help the new dentists get new equipment. And that's like five grand, 10 grand, whatever they need. So then we can, on our side, package up the compliance and the due diligence on the fintech and say to our community banks, hey, we've got this fintech. We're not going to tell you who it is. This is what they want to do. Would you like to offer your bank license to do that? And what price would you charge? And because we're not setting the price, we're letting the banks set the price, they can bid for the deal. And it's true matchmaking. We'll actually surface the offer. And when the the fintech gets three offers, we'll say, okay, fintech, choose which one you want. And you should choose based on price and also launch. Because a lot of the banks are sold out. So they don't have capacity to support new fintechs launching. And so time may be more important than money to some of the fintechs. And we'll give that offer. Once the the bank and the fintech agree on price and and timing, we'll unlock them and say, okay, great, you guys sign a deal and we'll operate the service on your behalf. This is all about embracing the future. It's about fintechs working together with financial institutions. Have we reached a point in the marketplace where the financial services industry in the United States of America is taking fintech seriously, realizing it's going to be a competitor, realizing it's not going away, realizing it's not just two guys with dubious personal hygiene sitting in a rented loft somewhere. Look, Chime, Robinhood, PayPal, all of these companies have grown to very significant organizations. PayPal, obviously, being a fintech from a long time ago that's now gone stratospherically large. But the ability for folks to create a new idea and come to market is still an area of growth, but people believe that it's possible. And it's a lot like before Stripe, it was quite hard to get card acquiring and those sorts of services if you're an e-commerce website. And John and Patrick created this open API that anyone could walk up to and say, hey, I want to do payments. Can you help me acquire a transaction? And they didn't know who was going to win, but they offered it up to everybody. And think of all the crazy innovation that's happened. Since then, in banking or in core banking deposits, whatever you want to call it, lending and so forth, We've yet to find that perfect ease of launching capability because there's always been an imbalance between the number of fintechs and the number of banks. If we can build a bit more equilibrium, what I think is going to happen is we're going to start to see even more interesting and new fund businesses get started. And yeah, there'll be embedded finance. We're talking to a bunch of fintechs that are doing crypto and not all banks want to do that. So we have to find banks that like crypto. We're talking to a bunch of fintechs that want to do cannabis. And cannabis is a very challenging financial transaction to execute in the US because you've got the intersection of federal and state law that disagree with each other. That's the game where there's a lot of innovation happening. 
I can't predict all the things that are going to happen. I do know there's lots of really fun things like yesterday or this morning, we were talking to a fintech based in uh, Argentina that has 350, 400,000 people doing reverse remittances. I didn't even think it was a thing, but there's money actually coming from LATAM back into the US for families and so forth. And they need a home. And we're like, great, we'll find you a bank that would take those deposits and then distribute them over ACH to their consumers. Lots of really interesting things. And if we can allow the cool innovation to come to market, I'm sure it's going to be even more stuff. Thank you very much, Peter Hazelhurst, co-founder of Sinkterra.